Welcome to the Education Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsor, Limmer Education, we can make science more accessible and understandable. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the August 2023 Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Education Research Journal Club. Uh, thanks for joining us. If you did last week, we were live at the National Association of EMS Educators Symposium uh, with Kim McKenna. And uh, this week, we're back to our regular programming. As you know, the PCRF, we promote research literacy to advance the science of EMS educational research. So here with the PCRF Journal Club, we're going to take a closer look at some of the research that's happening in medical education. First, a big thank you to Lemmer Education for sponsoring these podcasts so we can bring you the best of science in education. I'm Megan Corey, and I'm here with a big panel today. We've got a nice group. We've got Michael Caduce. We've got Katie O'Connor, David Page. Um, we've got a guest panelist today, Dr. Kimberly Witten-Chung, who is joining us. She recently published her dissertation on uh, simulation, so we'll be bringing her in. In a little bit, probably Dr. Bill Toon will be joining us, and we are going to discuss this article today entitled Simulation-Based Training and Its Use Amongst Practicing Paramedics and EMTs, or Emergency Medical Technicians, an Evidence-Based Systematic Review. And this was published just this year, January to March edition of the International Journal of Paramedicine. So welcome everyone, and uh, thank you all for joining us today. Remember one little reminder too, that uh, you can uh, use the chat feature, you can post your questions in the Q&A, we can bring those into the conversation as we go, you can talk amongst yourselves uh, in the chat. Uh, and remember if you ever miss anything or maybe you get called away and you'd like to come back to this conversation, you can go to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash at PCRF at UCLA, and you can also subscribe. And that way you don't miss any of our um, journal clubs, whether they're with uh, Dr. Emily Crow and Tony Fernandez or this one here on education. So let's get to this uh, article. And in, in what we're going to do, because we've got a nice big panel today, is we're going to, I want to start by first having um, our guest panelist, Dr. Kimberly Witten-Chung, uh, come on and introduce herself and your background. First of all, congratulations on your publication of your dissertation this year. Uh, that's a huge, huge accomplishment. So congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, uh, it was a labor of love, um, but uh, great to be through. Um, I uh, am currently the Director of Operations for the Center of Healthcare um, Education and Simulation at Pikes Peak State College. Uh, I oversee um, the simulation of our nursing department and our allied health programs. And I've been doing simulation, uh, and I'm a certified healthcare simulation educator. Uh, and I've been doing simulation for about uh, 18 years. 
That's great. Congratulations on your uh, dissertation. You. Tell us a little bit about what you studied. Sure. Uh, so uh, my dissertation topic was uh, director's perceptions of supplementing clinical requirements with simulation-based education in paramedic education. So the topic was um, looking at the perceptions of Colorado paramedic program directors and how they felt about using simulation-based education in place of the clinical, the COA clinical requirements. Um, and so uh, I looked at four research questions and each one of those research questions were able to be broken down into themes to answer those research questions. Um, I think that we ended up with some pretty good, I ended up with some pretty good um, data. Uh, the uh, Colorado paramedic program directors are, are um, were very forthcoming with um, information and um, I did a qualitative study. Um, so that allowed me to pull themes out of the information, out of the um, semi-structured interviews that I conducted with those um, program directors. And so um, even though I had the independent interviews with the program directors, we uh, I had emergent themes as a result of the codes and um, was able to have some very meaningful information that came out of that. So tell us what you, you know, I know Certainly. this is about a different article, but what did you find? Okay, so um, <clears throat> I didn't want to take too much time. However, that's okay. We I'm have, happy we to be hour. able to share. <laughs> um, so the first question that I asked was, was just very broadly, what are the perceptions that our program directors had about supplementing simulation-based education with uh, for clinical education? Um, and we, I had three emergent themes as a result of that. The first one was simulation and clinical education needs to be used in combination. Um, and as that came up, I was kind of obviously that that seems very apparent to us. Um, however, one of the things that I suspect you guys have discussed in this in this uh, forum is that. We, we have a significant lack of publication in EMS, EMS everything, right? We don't publish. And so um, having this theme emerge is, is novel. I actually, in all of the research articles that I've seen, it, it's not there. And so, so it's meaningful that this has come up from the Colorado paramedic program directors as an emergent theme because no one else has published this information. So um, the second um, theme was that simulation cannot replace some clinical experiences. So it's obviously important that our students continue to see patients, right? Like we cannot, put all of our paramedic students into a simulation-based ex, um, education experience and, and think that they're going to be prepared to go be entry-level paramedics. Mm -hmm. And then finally, um, for the first research question, there was there are common opportunities for simulation-based clinicals, such as our high acuity, low frequency patients. And so if we do well-developed simulation, 
um, we can effectively educate our students and replace those clinical opportunities. Um, you want me to go through all the research questions? No, this, uh, this is good. Actually, this is a good okay, start. Perfect. We can pull some of them in as we go here. Excellent. Uh, but I you've worked it. with um, nursing, and we know that in nursing research, there was the large you know, Hayden study by the NCSBN, hmm. um, you know, many years ago that looked at, they were actually after kind of a specific number, which can yes. advise states and programs, of course, of boards of res registered nursing as to how much you can supplement Correct. without it affecting your student outcomes and actually clinical outcomes. They went all the way to clinical outcomes. They would look they at did. practicing nurses. So that was a real big study that um, that we should be looking at uh, in EMS as well. So um, I, I wanted to move through our panel and just ask, ask if you can give a, a minute on, on your simulation experience so everyone knows where we're coming from when we attack this article, not attack, talk about this article, discuss this article. Uh, uh, Katie, uh, how about you? We know you, but uh, a little a little bit about your experience with simulation. Where, where are you coming from? What's your lens when you approach this article? Yeah, I'm primarily a simulator, uh, simulation educator and in uh, primary education. So I started simulation in EMS and in nursing education. And that's what I do now and mostly in paramedics. So I'm coming at it from the primary education in simulation. And you were um, you were on the NASCAR. You were the paramedic representative, right? On the yes, new I standards? was the, the EMS representative for the Anascal standards, which are the standards for simulation that are used. It's called Anascal, which is a little nursing in there, but really adopted by the Society for Simulation and Healthcare across all fields. Yeah, which is awesome. Uh, David Page is on too. David uh, is traveling, but uh, we've got you on. Um, you've Thank had you. a long, yeah. long history of simulations. In fact, I remember watching a very, a couple of critical presentations you did many years ago. Um, with Heather Davis um, and with others on on how to Dave, Dennis uh, Edgerly on on how to conduct low fidelity, high effect, highly effective simulations. Thank you. So um, yeah, it's only been thirty five plus years, um, so I'm still learning, um, which might depress some people who are just starting. But I do feel like science evolves and changes, and it's really um, fun and interesting to kind of go, oh, what we did back then was working or it didn't work. And I helped develop the current uh, COA uh, recommendations around language to describe the, uh, uh, with you, Megan, of course, and, and others to describe what, what we would call a simulation dictionary and hopefully begin to describe things in, in a similar uh, language as the Society for uh, Simulation and Healthcare, uh, which Katie was just talking about. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. I'm, I'm, I've got all sorts of uh, pointy edges to, to discuss. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thanks. Michael, Michael Caduce joins us from UCLA. Good morning, everybody. Michael Caduce, UCLA. I'm the EMT program director here. We're the largest program of EMT ed primary education in the U.S., about a thousand students through. Uh, thrilled to have implemented several great simulations as both part of our skills lab and even some scenarios where they get dispatched out of a lecture to go respond to a call and we zoom it back to the classroom. So uh, thrilled to be joining and reviewing this research. Yeah, this is great because uh, that's one of the points that will come out of, uh, th there is a comment, I think, in the discussion section about EMT, and it is an area that we need to discuss a little bit more in terms of uh, EMT and simulation 
uh, rather than EMT and checkbox skills uh, that so many people are still reliant on. But yep. okay, so what I want to do next is um, I'm going to reference what um, what uh, Kim said earlier, uh, which Megan, was Alex is here too. I, he, oh, he joined a little late, but Alex Tremblay's here. He's our. Oh, like, I can't see his name person. on here. Alex, Hi. are you here? Oh, uh, yeah, I'm there. here. Yeah, yeah. That's My funny. Zoom had to update. Your... Um, okay. Oh I, no. I apologize to be a couple minutes late. I, I forgot uh, to press the arrow. I actually still see Bill Tune too. I, there's a an arrow. You know, you guys all don't fit. Okay, go ahead, Alex. No problem. I like uh, Dave. I'm still learning, but not for nearly as long. I uh, work at, at an ambulance service uh, in, in a training capacity. I currently precept students, and uh, recently, as last year was responsible for some grant funding to move us from low fidelity to high fidelity simulation of the service. So that's my experience. And you have um, experience with the practicing, right? The practicing paramedic and EMT. So yep. that's a real distinction that we're going to have to really outline. It took me three reads through this to, to figure out that we were not talking about school. And some of that comes from my perspective, which is being an in initial education, but um, you know, not realizing this was actually not about uh, initial training. Dr. Bill Toon, can you hear us? And can you give us your background on uh, simulation? Hi there. Nice to see everyone on. I'm looking to looking very forward to seeing what Katie has to say about everything today. Mm -hmm. I consider her our simulation guru. And Dave Page, uh, round out those points and uh, let's not talk too much. So uh, probably the greatest use I had of simulation was in, when I did continuing education for 20 years in Kansas. And uh, we certainly did not begin that, begin with any really good simulation, but towards the end of our time there, we found a way to use uh, models that were properly uh, coached and scripted along with uh, good moulage and equipment that we could modify towards that so we could really develop and, and get better simulation. And of course, ever, the people in the field always enjoyed doing anything that was simulation-based over any task work or listening to any kind of uh, presentation. So there, there's my uh, experience with uh, simulation. Great. I think it's hard to find anybody in EMS education who hasn't had some experience with simulation. Even They may not even say it because they think, well, I've just been running these ad hoc scenarios. But we have really relied upon this. Even that level, um, we would consider you know, a, a type of simulation. So cast a wide net. And if you're, if you're out there and you're wondering about definitions, we use terms fidelity, you know, you use all different types of terms. Um, what David Page mentioned earlier, there is, uh, and even if you're not in a paramedic education program, if you're in another level, go to the uh, COA EMSP site and look up the simulation standards or recommendations. And you can look at, look at um, you know, all of the definitions or, um, and there's references and links to some of the things that, that Katie mentioned, um, which is the data, dic the dictionary around uh, simulation. That's a great place to start. So you kind of get, uh, you know, an idea of what we're talking about, because I was a little bit confused in this study. So this was a, um, they reference, and, and in this study, which the reason why the COA EMS piece, um, language comes into it is because they frequently reference this, uh, you know, during COVID-19, the statement or the uh, amendment uh, to the standards that the COA EMSP and many states, frankly, did too, amended their standards so that they had um, more flexibility for programs who were losing clinical sites. 
uh, for their students or for, you know, that's what's so confusing is COA and standards and we think paramedic programs, but the study itself was really on practicing paramedics. It's right in the title and EMTs. Um, but the, the statement they're talking about is the use of alternative evaluation methods uh, that was allowed uh, by the COE. So this study is a systematic review of the literature. They wanted to examine the literature on simulation-based training uh, in the allied health professions of paramedics and EMTs, and in that, including usage trends and their potential impact on the professions and the patients they serve. So um, a couple of things here. One is I'd, I'd like to uh, bring uh, David to, to help us kind of walk through what a systematic review actually is and, and why, um, why do we care about reviewing things that other Love people it. have already done? <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, if you think of the, the pyramid of sort of what the best research could be, a well-done systematic review is really at the very top of the best ways to say, you know, this is a, a very evidence-based approach of ranking the best evidence available and saying, this is what's out there today about this topic. And um, a well-done systematic review will use a grade methodology, which is part of a, a consensus group called Cochrane that kind of said, okay, these are the ways in which we're going to rank the evidence. And if it's a multi-center trial with a large population of either patients or students and had a, you know, has, has a very strong recommendation, so results that are very, very impactful, then it, it rises to a higher grade. And and this grade methodology is not only grading and assessing, and uh, but also developing and educating, and, and it's an acronym actually. So groups of experts systematically search the literature, which is where the word systematic comes from, and you you decide a time period, in this case, 2010 to 2021, decide which databases you're gonna search and, and what potentially what uh, studies you're going to include. So in this case, they exclude anything with a student, include, um, and, and actually only included U.S. and Canadian studies. So when we get to the discussion, that's a little pointy peak. I love the, the comment from Bill Toon. I'm not going to run with scissors and stab myself, but I, there, there are some issues here where uh, they excluded large groups of studies, especially from Australia and the U.K., that could have been quite helpful in, in this discussion. And, and, and so you decide, okay, we're gonna include this. And then authors do just a title and abstract search. So you call every possible uh, word search to, that the search engines help you find. And then once you've got that, you have to decide, okay, you really, this was about nurses or this is about you know, they use the word simulation, but it's not really actually what we were looking for. And eventually end with a, a group of uh, more full article uh, reads. Some There's software that helps you categorize and, and uh, have multiple reviewers eventually agree to include, exclude, and eventually um, be able to share that. And in this case, they used EndNote I use Mendeley because, and, and other people's use Otero just to organize your library of hundreds and hundreds of papers that you're going to be either 
pulling down or looking at. And once you've once you really ran, you know, in EMS, we're really familiar with ACLS and, and AHA saying, okay, this is a class one or a best evidence available, strong evidence that this really actually changes outcomes in patients. So in education, it would be the same thing. If we know that, that uh, there's a particular technique or some study that really showed outcomes had improved in, in graduates. And, um, and that's how we, we would end up with a table and a description of each one of these articles and what they lend. And sometimes that yields a conclusion like, you know, uh, if you were to do it probably on, uh, I'm going to just go uh, uh, my friend Bill a little bit and say, if you did intubation and cardiac arrest today, you probably would come out with an answer that says, doesn't matter. Um, and, uh, you know, do you do intubation versus superglottic? Because you take the uh, aggregate number of all the studies and say, oh, you know, based on this and these large studies, these small studies, this is a well done study. This was just retrospective. And eventually you get to a, okay, based on that, these hundreds of thousands of patients or, or tens of thousands really benefited from this or not really, it just didn't matter. It wasn't a big difference. Uh, and in, in this case, they, they uh, flirt with the concept of systematic review. I think uh, probably, and they registered this trial, which is a really good thing to do when people are doing systematic reviews, registering, um, and there's a couple of different uh, uh, registries where you can say, here's my methodology, here's what I'm doing, and, um, and then report it and use standardized methods like Prisma to report how you did it. So if somebody else came along and, and did the same thing, you would find, get the same results as sort of the recipe for success and, and reproducibility. And, and it, it just um, means you're more, a more serious scientist if you've really, you know, published the way that you did it in a, such a way that it could be reproduced. Um, there, there are some issues with, uh, with the way this particular one was done. So the methods really, you know, begin with the end in mind. And, and if you're talking about the recipe, if you really mess up the recipe, the end result is that the meal might be kind of bland. And this meal is pretty bland, in my opinion. So uh, in, when you begin to decide and and what's important or how to rank it you may automatically find yourself in a in a category of of well if you only look at that of course it's going to come out the way you you know you thought it would so hopefully that gives a frames this particular uh type of of systematic review this is probably more in the vein of a scoping review and the terminology is actually important because scoping reviews do not evaluate the uh, scientific rigor of each study and then rank them against each other and aggregate. They come up with more uh, themes and what, what was studied and what is perhaps um, the identification of a gap. And many PhD students, uh, particularly paramedicine students in Australia, PhD students would have to do either a scoping or a systematic review. Scoping reviews are more liberal. You can include articles and, and um, uh, you can do searches on Google and, and, and explore 
branches of a topic without having to have them meet a more scientific, rigorous. They had to be published in an indexed uh, journal that appears on the National Library of Medicine or PubMed. So it it gives you a little bit more freedom, and the the ad, the advantage is that you're you're including and describing uh, a little bit of a wider swath of what is you know what you intended. Uh, systematic reviews, if you really are tightly you know, focused, you might, you might actually come up with zero. And then you probably shouldn't do the systematic review. In this case, they included the concept of patient outcome, which they measured as uh, a, a study that would have shown them length of stay. And uh, we can discuss whether that's actually a good way to measure patient outcome or not. It, that's up for debate. But by doing so, they were really uh, focusing on studies by practicing paramedics and EMTs. And, and, and that's great if you have studies that did that. Now, they had none. And so that's, that's a good thing to publish in the literature to say no one has done that, at least in the US and Canada. And yet, it might be helpful if that's one of your criteria to reference maybe nursing or other allied health professions that did do that and that did show that simulation mattered. So um, it's an interesting uh, introduction that's really based on, on committee on accreditation issues and student type simulation concepts, except that the systematic review was on clinicians and there is, you know, there are data from other professions saying this is linked to outcomes. So, uh, kind of a mix and match that doesn't work in the methods here. At least it didn't work for me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, uh, Bill Toon and I like to rib each other, but Bill really should talk about the phenomenal job they did at MedAct when they enacted a, a battalion chief, an educating, an educator is a battalion chief who takes simulation on the road uh, and, and brings it to the, first responders and the paramedics together to both remediate or refresh or uh, really address a QI issue and improve. And so in the science of quality improvement that today, you know, Alex Tremblay will be very eloquent to be able to describe that concept of pinpointing a, a particular behavior we can, we can rehearse and prepare for high fidelity low, you know, high, high acuity, high acuity, and high fidelity simulation for low frequency types of cases is a very useful intervention, a very lasting intervention. Yeah, I wonder if, um, Bill, if you have any thoughts about, you know, there's one thing to run um, continuing education simulations, it's another to publish them. So they're looking for actually publications. What, you know, what, do you have any, any feedback on that? What, what takes somebody to say, okay, I'm running this continuing education. Now I'm going to publish it unless there's a physician there who has a requirement. No, I think that that's, that's the crux when you're dealing with uh, EMS research is we don't have access to the funding. You know, it would have been great if we had taken our experience and written it all up and published it, you know, so it was not a big secret to the rest of the world. So I'm not familiar with uh, similar to what we did that I've seen published and stuff. Um, 
But I, I think there's a lot of agencies that do something similar to what we did or probably even do something better than what we did. But ours was very much tied, again, towards the end of my tenure there. We tried to tie as much of what we were doing related to trying to correct something found in, in QI. Mm-hmm. And uh, sure. so we would get something from the medical director that said, you know, we need to focus on this. And then in between there, we always had the also focused on the um, low frequency, you know, um, high acuity skills were also mixed into there of also trying to cover our, um, you know, cover our continuing, I mean, cover our CQI concerns. The other thing I know that since I've left there is they do credentialing and I'm not sure how they do that. Yeah. So, um, and it's when Alex, you're, you're also in QI. Um, so I'm wondering if you have any, any feedback about that, the idea of, you know, is this in, we see more and more QI being published, by the way, in in the form of you know in in research. And it's one of those QI research there, the, the crossroads there. Um, and I'm wondering if you have uh, any comment on that on experience there. Yeah, uh, quality improvement is just the the research scientific method kind of simplified and flattened out for a business purpose, right? And so, and that's that's really like my that's the thing that like brings me back to work every day is continuous improvement. It's a lot easier to say, hey, we saw this problem. We did this. We fixed this problem. And and now here's where we're at. The thing that that's good here and the thing that has to be considered long-term is like your intervention, your test is and your, your subsequent improvement is usually fleeting, right? 90 days per improvement is kind of what you anticipate even with a locked-in um, process. So, hey, listen, now we're going to only tape the end title to the laryngoscope handle so that you can't forget it or whatever. Um, eventually, people just get used to unt- untaping the, the end title and, and moving it, right? So um, this is a really great example of start and then continue and like, how do you lock that in? And and what we found at the service is that simulation was the way that we locked it in, right? And especially by moving to something like, you know, we had a hal when I left, um, left that role full time was was really what did it. So that's QI in a nutshell. Yeah, so start going back to what David said, starting with the end in mind, kind of backwards mapping. Um, and when I think about QI, are, and and you see presentations on um, a best practice that someone has done that a, a you know a change that they've implemented into their system and they've seen uh, certain outcomes and they present it at a conference. Um, it's more like showcasing your system, showcasing an example. Um, it, maybe they'll take it to publication, but it seems like it's an area ripe for something like action research, where you have you know groups of people that are just continuously going through this cycle of improvement that uh, ultimately affects the community. So, uh, David? Yeah, you know, um, in, in this context, and I, I think a lot of us are familiar with resuscitation science that really, you know, the reason AHA had a practice while you watch and then went to some of the, the, the classic studies around if you can, you know, do CPR in this way, there's gonna be an outcome that's improved and let's simulate this and see how long people retain those skills. It was surprising to me in these in, in this paper that resuscitation science that has been very well published and, and, and very popular around, if you have people simulate this way, you will actually produce patient outcomes that are survival to discharge, that 
that in their search, this doesn't really come up. And so, so again, we're talking about methods right now, and we're talking about how to systematically include or exclude papers. And in, in the case of, if you're thinking about, you know, simulation, a simulation, sim, you know, the, the, the process of doing a cardiac arrest, and what does that result in? That could have been very powerful in this particular set of methods, but I didn't see it. Um, yeah. or I, at least they didn't describe it or describe why they would have excluded it. And that, that leaves questions in my mind about, did they capture all the ways in which we have simulated uh, and use simulation? Because they describe it very well. I, I really like the way they say, look, this is high fidelity. You know, simulation can be anything mm -hmm. from, you know, can you do a task to can you put it all together? OK, so uh, so if you're going to if you're describing all of these methods of simulation, then which one were you really interested in? And and, and I really appreciate the fact that they they're they're often describing what we would call this obsession with checklists. Not that I think checklists are great, but the concept of, of a motor skill that is uh, rote memorization of a um, kind of a non-realistic, non-actual uh, list of, of uh, processes versus a checklist that's based on safety and outcome. Mm -hmm. And when they describe those protocol-driven, did you tick the boxes kind of checklists, there's just, they, they did find a lot of what, you know, we would expect, which is there's, there's that driver to do simulation that says you met the protocol. Um, so I really like what some people have been doing around culture of safety and outcome and saying, you know, it doesn't matter if you give them uh, oxygen or not, or, or nitro or not, if you don't give a STEMI aspirin 12 lead in a cath lab, those are the three things that actually matter. So you can have long, long checklists that don't matter. And um, that, that um, this, the, the description in this study is really great about why we, we tend to be task oriented and not necessarily outcome oriented. And I really like that about these, these methods. Yeah. So um, looking at the table here, then you can see that we're just getting to the results and um, and uh, then Katie, I'd like to hear from you. So just looking here uh, after you've they've identified and gone through their screening and eligibility criteria, and then they come down to the full text articles that they're going to use. Um, they assessed 42 for eligibility, uh, 20 got excluded for not relevant countries, which... Um, will be an interesting comment. I'd like to hear from, <laughs> from you guys on that in a little bit. I think you mentioned it. Um, and then they used an N of 25 to evaluate. I did not, of course, include the gigantic table that you usually see in a systematic review, which has the breakdown of everything from author and study and purpose and population and design, uh, intervention uh, and, and study setting the results, and then a risk of bias assessment, which is something that David uh, mentioned earlier. Katie. Yeah, just listening to Dave talk about some of the things that got excluded. Obviously, we're like huge countries and parts of the world that don't do a lot of paramedic research or EMS research. But we also seem to have missed anything related to disaster sim um, or sim X, which is actually huge in the publishing area, right? Like, so we see a lot of 
disaster simulations that are published. And I, I think it's probably something related to the terms that they used, but that's an area where EMS is actually doing a lot of sim, right? So we're thinking about like mm -hmm. active shooter sims, mass casualty sims, and maybe it's because we can't really link to patient outcomes, but um, that might be where it got excluded. I just thought it was really interesting that when we think about EMS, we usually like kind of forget that we're emergency. And um, we think about medicine because we do, do so many non-emergency things, which came up in this study, but that whole like actual emergency, like disaster, uh, didn't even come up here. So we lost our E, it seems like a lot. And to, to the point that you made, um, the terms, they did print in here, all of the terms, the specific search terms. So you could, I, I actually appreciate when people either put in the appendix and a link, or they put it directly in the article, if they have the editorial space all of the search terms, they they put it all in. So you could actually kind of go through and critique based upon looking at their search terms that they used and the databases that they used and then their exclusion criteria as well. So um, there is an error on this um, figure that that we uh, pointed out, somebody pointed out before we came on today, which is the color scheme at the bottom of the legend is uh, does not match what is above, but this is the, the pie chart that shows um, how many, uh, what, the studies that they had, which was 25 of them, who were the subjects um, that they, that were um, they were looking at, which was um, most were just paramedic, uh, 16 out of 25, then uh, eight out of 25 were paramedic and EMT, um, and one only one article uh, involved just EMT. So, uh, and the articles by simulation focus. Uh, general assessment and treatment, airway management, and resuscitation were up there as the top. Um, and then other was a category and other included, um, and this is in their article, care planning, drug administration, and transport. So I'm going to assume that's one of each there. Um, and then imaging, and I'm not sure exactly whether that was sonography or, or what. I'm not sure if I picked that up in there. But these were that this is just sort of the general breakdown of the focus of the um, of the articles, the the personnel and um, the focus. And then uh, they broke down the uh, common features um, within the articles. And this is where it dawned on me. It took me uh, uh, during the first read that they were not talking about uh, initial education, even though it's right in the title. It took me a minute because they, the minute they brought up the COA, I thought, oh, maybe we're talking about education. But the um, study setting was the one that surprised me. I don't know how you guys um, felt about this, but the study setting mobile simulation lab or unit kind of surprised me. And then we had this discussion before about uh, the study setting and mobile simulation labs. So, um, Kim, I wonder if you can come on and, and, and you're, you are over a number of different level programs. And do you use this mobile simulation lab and unit? Um, at this point, uh, we don't, we're, we are stationary, but we have had conversations, um, actually, so I'm in Colorado. And so we actually have had conversations in Colorado about, um, using uh, or developing mobile simulation as in a cooperative between uh, initial education and um, continuing education so that we could integrate um, that the concept actually that was discussed earlier uh, to ensure that our um, continuing education um, uh, practitioners 
would have access to um, well-developed simulation activities. And so that's one of the um, one of the things that I think is really important as we talk about simulation is that um, uh, gone are the days that we uh, throw a mannequin on the floor and and run the call that we ran last night without objectives or or um, outcomes that have been developed beforehand. And so I think that. Um, uh, we have to have a, a defined definition of what simulation is, and simulation isn't necessarily high fidelity or low fidelity. I think simulation is um, the development of the educational activity. Thank you. Um, that's, you know, thunderous applause to that comment. Um, the uh, Which I think, you know, the whole idea of the educational, um, you know, institutions, programs, where you have uh, educators that are focused solely on the uh, education component um, of and and the process and the procedure and the definition of simulation and then you know feed that into the system. I think that's uh, a great idea, uh, Mike. Uh, I'm thrilled they included some simulation buses. We had one of these when I was at the University of Iowa. It was at old Winnebago and we used to drive it across the state. I would echo what Kimberly said. You still have the great educational methods um, that go into simulation. Uh, I'm going to see if I can find it. There's a couple of grants that are actually out there to help fund simulation labs like this for rural EMS. Um, there's actually one still going on in the state of Iowa. So I'm going to see if I put it in the chat. But um, I will say it's a blast driving a Winnebago across the state of Iowa to do simulation with EMS providers. Uh, if you can an opportunity to do that in your area. It's a ton of fun. You know, um, I noticed uh, there are a ton of experts on the on this particular uh, audience. I'm, I, first of all, great to see so many people tune in. Obviously, the simulation was a hot topic, but uh, don't be afraid to use the chat area to kind of share your expertise, just like Chris Ryder did. And, and I see Anthony Gurney here and, and others that are PCRF uh, associates that, that have experience doing research in this particular area. So uh, the the cursory, the, 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 what 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 Kimberly just said is is just so incredibly important. And that is, you know, people just assume throw the mannequin on the ground, come up with a scenario, and then go. And um, I I if if you don't have access to a library of well-developed scenarios that are really uh, have objectives that that are uh, that that have particular uh, learning outcomes tied to them. Then you know, then reach out and and actually use some of the things that have already been developed um, or formats that have been developed because you, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Uh, and I'd be I I wouldn't be me if I wouldn't say you know put a shameless plug into the National Association of EMTs certification courses like PHDLS, AMLS, CPC, AMLS. courses that have developed hundreds of scenarios that are impossible to do in two days. So it's really about, you know, an, a library of scenarios that are useful, that have specific teaching points. And um, uh, really, the just naming the environment. So, so I love the Winnebago across Iowa. Uh, if we know what we're teaching and if, if we have uh, enough frequency and access to this tool. And so I get very nervous. In, in Minnesota, we, we saw a, a great, like, I don't know, there were three or four of these 
big semi trailers. And I, I, I see the value of bringing it to a hospital and having all the, all the staff work on a particular piece of it. But I also know that getting a license to drive the semi and actually paying somebody to learn to use the simulation equipment and move it is hard. And, and in our world and in the audience that I'm used to working with, educators need to scrounge. And I would use the back of an ambulance um, uh, before I, I tried to figure out a semi because that's where that's where we work. And so using that using our our uh, really what is it that we're after would be great. Also, Megan, they talk about virtual simulation. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was interesting that they they didn't find any studies regarding the use of virtual simulation, which is a (laughs) a gap that I really like that they said we should do a bit of this because you're talking about rural, you talk about access, talk about getting you know, the highest education we can into difficult to reach areas. And we should be thinking not just about the, the resources like high fidelity mannequins getting there, but rather how can we use what we have already and supplement with, you know, more uh, well, well orchestrated virtual pieces. I think they missed a few. There's been several augmented. We actually have looked at a few of them on on this um, show. So and then next time we're going to be looking at augmented reality. So um, I thought I think they missed a few by definitely not including Australia because Australia has done a few pretty innovative things with virtual um, simulation and and uh, and others. So uh, yeah, that that some of that may have been the product of the search. Alex? Megan, they didn't say why, right? I, I was just reviewing my notes quick. They, they, they didn't explain why they only chose those two countries, right? They didn't, but you know what? I'm I'm thinking now too, I'm thinking back to what I just said, and, and that was initial education again. So this is not initial education, so they're right. missing on that too. So the use of virtual and augmented reality, you know, in on in practicing paramedics and EMTs, I think you're going to get different results here with when if you look at um, initial education programs as well. Yeah, I, I think I was thinking about what Dave said earlier about how like systematic reviews, meta-analyses are, are really the top tier of, of research. They're the top tier of research, if they're looking usually at like double-blinded research controlled trials, they have to be really strong and they also have to cast a wide net. And my, I think my biggest challenge here is that this is just like, this is a very narrow net to start yeah. that, that not, it's good. It's a great, great foundational research. It's just, I, I yeah. miss the why in that respect. Yeah. And then Mike, can you make a comment about EMT level? Um, is it just not studied? I mean, we're, this is just not not published, not studied, because we know it's used. I don't know. I st- I'm reading this the same way. Like I, I would echo, like I did my master's thesis in MCI education and there's tons of simulations out there on MCIs that I looked through and didn't see any of them. Um, so I think there is simulation EMT education. I think we can all agree there's probably not enough as there should be. Um, but I think there's definitely simulation going on. I'll echo what everyone else has said, which is this doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be expensive. You don't need the mobile sim lab in the parking lot necessarily. Um, in fact, I was just watching a graduation video and our immersive classroom showed up. They're running a simulation on the beach where we were projecting on the walls. But you can do it even easier. Bring in some former students, run a cardiac arrest. 
Um, we focus a lot more simulation for EMTs, not on the skills, but on the effective domain, um, trying to get them to deliver, to, to communicate with patients. And in that younger 18 to 24 demographic that we see a lot of EMT students, they're still building those skills of how to communicate with their partner, with their team, with family members. Um, I thought it was great. I saw Dan Batts. He's on here. I stole a simulation from him because he shared it at a conference about talking to a patient whose only complaint was that they wanted to cancel their meals on wheels for the day because you were taken to the hospital and last time some animals got into it. We run that and talk about how important it is to take care of your patient's medical complaints, but also the other things that are going on in their life. Um, so I, I think it's huge. It's easy to do and we probably need more of it, but we probably also just don't study it. There's probably nothing published on it because we're too busy trying to get them to assemble the oxygen tank while trying to get them to deliver, you know, good therapeutic communication. Katie, <laughs> thunderous applause. Yeah. I just like, I can't say this enough. Like even in this article, they're the things that are in the chart, they're focusing on a mannequin or not a mannequin and like a simulate patient. And some of the ways that they're talking about fidelity here are again, are just again, equipment focused and fidelity has such a different meaning depending on what the learning objective is. And we can just see this comment on skills and the, like, can you put a learning scope in the right place? Right. And we're all so focused on that. Um, it's important. Get it. Airway is important. We just had this horrible fallout with an unrecognized esophageal innovation. Get it. But what we do 90% of the time is not that. And we're really not focusing that on training. We don't see it. They mentioned the COA here. We don't see it in the SMC coming from the COA where can you cancel someone's meals on wheels? How many Sims did you run of that? So I just want to jump on with Caduce and say, we should be researching that. We should be counting it and we should be focusing our studies around what we do. Go ahead, Kim. I was going to say, one of the things that I think we should do as an industry, as a discipline, I think discipline's better than industry, is, is we, we number one, I think we all need to speak the same language, and that's not something that we do. I think we need to, our skills focus is, is deliberate practice. And so we, we have our students work, right? Somebody's going to take five times to get that right airway. Somebody's going to take 25 times to get that right airway. The students know, right? They know when they're ready. Um, and I shouldn't tell them when they're going to be ready. Um, then we move into that scenario, right? And we have that with Appendix G now SMC, right? But, but, but we should be using that language. We should be using the language instead of saying skills practice, we should be saying to our students, now you are going to use deliberate practice. And, and so that they're in that idea. And then when we move into simulation, when we do simulation, we are using the, the whole idea of, of a, and NASCAL standards, the healthcare standards of best practice in simulation. And we should apply those in our scenarios and our deliberate practice. But if we are in the realm of simulation, I think that we should be meeting all of the simulation standards or at least striving to meet those standards. And we should be doing that as a discipline across the nation. That's my two cents. That's great. Um, there's a, a book and a podcast that goes with it that's on simulation and healthcare education that talks a lot about the evidence is mostly centered on on residents 
Um, but you know, physicians have paramedics and and DMS providers have the same kind of workflow as an emergency um, uh, physician. So the um, you know the, these same principles apply, and they've done research that goes all the way out to patient outcome. Uh, specifically with uh, the uh, outcomes of procedural skills like central line placement and the reduction on, they have actually gone all the way out to financial outcomes to the return on investment and found uh, positive uh, influence of, of uh, deliberate practice, mastery learning, simulation-based mastery learning uh, you, on, on central line placement uh, and, in, and not in just a mannequin uh, insertion technique, but in an entire simulation uh, and then they they did the kind of levels of outcomes, the translational outcomes, all the way out to um, length of stay in the hospital, like reduction of of infections, which were apparently a serious issue, um, and then uh, length of stay. That could be done. This could be done um, in in something. So I, I'm I'm really confident that that we've got a few things on the horizon. One is a big study like the uh, NCSBN study that helps us get at, you know, the simulation and and clinical uh, combination and, and what any kind of recommendations we can make for programs in terms of, you know, um, percentages or whatever uh, that can help states, right, with their regulations and, and with policy. Um, and the other is some of these translational science outcomes that I think are, are on the horizon step by step, but it starts with the initial education into the continuing education and beyond. So I love what you said, Kimberly, about the combination and Alex and Katie about, and Michael, but com combining everything. So uh, Katie. Yeah, I think one of the things too, is that we might be missing some of this because we don't see things as simulation. So I'm thinking about like the there's a lot of studies in from the ROC, the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium, um, around if we should be using an eye gel or a, a King Airway or intubation or intubation, right? Um, there, those interventions, those studies, they had simulation training as part of the study for active paramedics before they use those devices. But we're not capturing that, right? So we in as a simulation intervention. But we're doing that. When we roll out the eye gel, they do sin. They have to put the eye gel in a mannequin head before mm -hmm. they use the eye gel in the field. But what we're publishing is, oh, we implemented this eye gel and the people are doing that. But we also That's added right. an intervention of simulation. Um, so I think sometimes we're missing that too. And then just when we think about outcomes, I agree, length of stay is a great outcome measure and all of that. But if you look at like the paramedic two trial, outcome wasn't that you got a pulse back. It was that you have a neurologically intact survival. And I think sometimes we need to think about what are what's actually the outcome that we should be looking for. And if we're thinking about these effective things, maybe it's patient satisfaction surveys and scores, which are things that we do, right? That they are things we do in EMS. So maybe that could be one of the things we link to. I couldn't agree more. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a very snobbish comment too, which I will qualify. So uh whenever I hope anybody's listening to this podcast, they're listening with the intent to perhaps duplicate the study or do research of their own or participate in this process to advance pre-hospital care with with that with evidence and science and and I want to I want to give kudos to Megan for finding this secondly I want to give kudos to having it published because I think if they would have just kept their process to themselves then we wouldn't have had the benefit of learning some of the key pieces that they've they, they've elucidated. 
I also, the snobbish part of this comment is this is a nascent journal that they published in, yes. which is great, right? So the International Journal of Paramedicine is brand spanking new, so new that it's not indexed yet. So, I, you know, the National Association of EMS Managers is sponsoring it and has people like me on the editorial board. So I am, I'm part of this when, and I'm, when a journal is born, it needs material and they, there's a good review process started. And Mick Gunderson was one, one of the people who started Brasswell Disaster Medicine. So he knows how to do a journal. And there's, there's really good reasons to publish this. At the same time, the, the way that people rank journals and, and, and have impact on evidence is when people cite them and when what their findings are really well substantiated. So, so we have, we are beginning this journey, which means we should read and contribute and participate and also take with a grain of salt um, uh, because we're just, this is a unproven, you know, medium that we're beginning to, to explore. Oh, this is great. Um, so we only have a couple of minutes left. Alex, go ahead. Dave, I, I just, to bounce off that. So uh, to talk about unindexed journals, right? So in public administration, public policy, right now there's journal social equity and public policy that just started here in Minnesota. Really excited to see it get indexed in two years, right? Um, one of the challenges, and, and we talked uh, we talked at the beginning about how there's just not a lot of EMS research. One of the challenges that we're going to have to overcome is the fact that acceptance rates in index journals that still use impact factors are hilariously low, right? So um, the American Review of Public Administration is a, is a journal that I'm on the steering board for, not the editorial board. Their, their acceptance factor is nine and a half percent, right? So if we don't have research that one makes sense to practitioners and two is applicable and we're accepting at a rate of nine and a half percent, then we probably aren't putting out enough research. And people that read academic journals understand how to critique academic research, right? So you can't just read it and say, hey, look, this study said four milligrams of cardiac arrest is the best for everybody. The part of research is is creating foundational research. And so again, same thing, really excited that this is out. But we, we have, there's a problem that has to be fixed, which is how do we get more research in front of people in a way that makes sense that, that, is, that is not happening right now and probably is holding back some EMS advancement. The accessibility I, I alone, it. right, David? The I love accessibility it. Right, alone right. we talk about. I, open, we always say we want to make it more accessible, but there's the paywall. Yeah. yeah. You know, everyone on this, on this uh, uh, and every listener to this should be looking at Rebecca Cash's latest publication because she is actually she did a, a great job of showing there is there is ems research it is improving and and to alex's point uh the the articles that get rejected from pec are automatically going to the ijp this new international journal of paramedicine uh so so they they're in the flow of those rejects uh quote unquote which sometimes are not rejects they're great studies they just aren't really appropriate for that venue or not. So it, it, it does matter, it is growing and we should support it. And at the same time, we need to be indexed. It's really, really important to actually go through the steps to do the thing right. This is great. Uh, anybody have anything more to say? We're right at the hour and I wanna make sure that we let people go back to uh, their business, but uh, any final comments from anyone? 
do more sim. <laughs> and remember to contact the PCRF if you need any help with anything. We have mentors standing by. All right. I want to well, one, one, oh, one of course Bill thing. has one thing to say. Go ahead. No, just <laughs> I it it probably we with this podcast may need to maybe every several months or you know a couple of times a year really need to make sure we're we're looking at the research dealing with simulation and bring it here to this this audience because I'll yeah. I'll still say that and Tim touched on this before we lack a common language particularly amongst EMS educators even lack a common uh, you know a common terminology around simulation so we need to continue to build the competency in our EMS educators to really be able to embrace simulation and get all the benefits that can come out of it. Great. Thank you, Bill. And uh, Kim, can you just come on and tell us, uh, can we find your dissertation anywhere yet? Uh, yes, it is published um, through the request uh, or one of those look at the um, scholar works. Uh, but I'm happy to send it to anyone that would like to spend their time reading it. <laughs> and where can they find you? Um, my, I'll put my email in the chat. Great. Um, and um, I also, as I am sitting here espousing that everyone needs to publish, I also need to summarize my dissertation findings and work to get them published. Great. Great. We look forward to that. And thank you very thank much you for so joining much. us today. Uh, good luck with everything me. you're so doing. Much. Yeah, we'd love to have you again, especially when we're talking about simulation. So thank you everyone for joining us today. Uh, PCRF Education Research Journal Club. We will be back September 22nd live from New Orleans at the EMS World Expo. We're going to be live again. This is going to be so much fun. And we're back talking about simulation pre-hospital pediatric emergency training using augmented uh, reality simulation, a prospective mixed method study. This is in PEC, it is open access 2023, you can pull it. And our next journal club with Dr. Remley Crow, Dr. Tony Fernandez is Monday, September 11th. So you can join them earlier than uh, our next uh, podcast here. Remember to join us live each month. You can register at prehospitalcare.org. And you can find our archives on your, our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash at PCRF at UCLA. And thank you everyone for joining us. See you next time. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at www.pcrfpodcasts.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website at www.prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsor, Limmer Education, providing education tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey.